0: On the 9th of September 2017, I got married to Kath, and just this week we got to celebrate our fourth anniversary. I preached on the Gold Coast this morning. They didn't do that when I said that, so that just means we're family, right? (laughs) Whenever I go away with Kath, something I like to do to take my mind off, uh, I guess what plagues my mind otherwise, is read novels. I find no better way to switch off, no better way to engage with my own soul, no better way to reflect on life and find margin uh, than to read a book. And on this holiday, we had two, um, a few days up the coast last, end of last week, on this holiday, I picked up a book from my shelf that I knew I could knock over in a few days. It was like 100 pages long. and It was written by Albert Camus. It's called The Stranger. Some of you might have read this novel. Uh, I've been wanting to read it for a long time. Albert Camus, he was a journalist in the 20th century, he was a philosopher, and he was the, he was the, one of the things that his philosophy engages is the notion that life is absurd. That if it's true, Al, Cam, Camus was a, an atheist, by the way, it's helpful to know. If it's true that we only get 80 years, you know, at the end of the 21st century with a you know, expect, life expectancy of 80-plus years, if it's true that we only get 80-plus years, and the ultimate end of this entire world is... well, the going theory is like heat death, right, Um, for the entire universe, then, and this is his conclusion, life is absurd. Life is truly absurd. Uh, In the novel, it it follows the story um, of a guy named Mersault. He's a French man from Algiers. And Mersault, he's a disinterested and disengaged guy. And he believes the myth that this life doesn't have meaning. He believes the atheistic story that this life doesn't have meaning. He's disinterested and disengaged. His mother dies at the start of the story, and he doesn't care. He gets a girlfriend halfway through the story, and he doesn't care. He uh, commits murder towards the back end of the story, and he doesn't care. Uh, And then the final act is he's sentenced to death in prison, and he just doesn't care. And for Camus, the writer of the novel, uh, Mersol, the character of the novel is the embodiment of what it means to look at the meaninglessness of life and just be okay with it. And the whole question that the book raises is this. Why does what I do even matter? For Mersol in the story, it didn't. For Camus, who's an atheist, an honest one at that, it doesn't. But is it possible that it could? Why does what I do even matter? In this series, we've been exploring the question, how does the, the, the Christian story inform our work and transform our work? In the first... So of sermon, we unpack the idea that work is good because God made us to steward creation, to take the raw materials of creation and modeled by our Father in heaven to push that out across the known world. But work is also cursed because we find ourselves east of Eden, exiled from the garden, not in the place that God intended us for. And so we know better. We know that we should pursue excellence at work because work's a good thing. But we also know better than to find work as the primary place in which we get our meaning. We know better than that. It's not the primary place from which we get our identity, our worth, and our meaning. It'll hurt us. It'll crush us if that's the case. After that, we explored Sabbath, that one of the best resources the Christian story has to offer for us who are workers, humans, is a rhythm of life. Resting well to working well. Working well to resting well. And our hope is that you've been changed. But today... I wanna go to the end of the Christian story and look back and ask the question, how does the hope of the Christian story inform and transform our work? How does the hope of the Christian story inform and transform our work? And to do that, two brief points. Number one, what the Christian hope is, and number two, what the Christian hope changes. So here, number one, what the Christian hope is. There's actually a lot of confusion in our world around what the Christian hope is. If I were to ask you, what is the hope that Christians have. Many people would say different things, actually. But one of the going theories, one of the going stories that you hear in our culture, particularly in the West, goes something like this. It says, the material world is bad, it's doomed to destruction, and one day, God will take Christians away from this earth, into a spiritual place called heaven, and in heaven, we'll hover on the clouds, we'll play harps for God into eternity. Yippee. Um, Sarcasm.com. Now, there's two problems with this. One, it just sounds like a really terrible way to spend a long, long time. (laughs) Eternity is long, and this does not sound exciting to me, but two, it's just not the picture which the Bible gives. There's parts of it that are true, the language is faithful, but the imagery that comes to mind is not. This picture actually comes from a different philosopher, a guy named Plato. He lived in the 4th century BC, and Plato had this idea that the material world is inferior to the spiritual world. He had this view of the cosmos, that uh, ultimate reality. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the flesh we have, it's not the material world we see out there. Ultimate reality is this world of forms. He famously called the, the, the human body the prison of the soul those after him thought that the material world was inferior to the spiritual world. For Plato, here's the catch. For Plato, the material world is something that should be abandoned, number one. And two, the primary task of the human is to escape. Later, Christians adopted Plato's worldview, but they packaged it in biblical language. Because of this, so many people think that heaven is this good spiritual place, and that earth is this bad material place. If you want me to prove it, I grew up on the steady diet of the Simpsons, and uh, I I would always ask friends like, hey, remember in the Simpsons when this scene came along and they'd look at me and say, what kind of childhood did you have? And I'd be like, The best kind. (laughs) 6 p.m. every night, Channel 10, Simpsons are on, me and Bart are hanging out, and my parents are in the other lounge room watching the news headlines. But every time heaven is depicted in The Simpsons, which is a pretty decent commentary on what Christians in the West think, think about that. Every time it's depicted in The Simpsons, you've got God, you'll see it on the screen behind me, you've got God as the spiritual father figure with a big white beard, sitting on a throne in the clouds, and here's the catch. Far, 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 far away from this world. That's the picture. Heaven, when Christians adopt Plato's worldview, gets defined as this spiritual world where Christians escape to it at the end of their life, and earth gets pictured as something that just needs to be abandoned. And here's the thing, it couldn't be further from what the Bible says. In the Scriptures, God didn't just create the, the, the spiritual world. He created the material world. In God's eyes, heaven is good, and earth is good. Now, sure, that... Earth is now subject to decay. We'll get there in a second. But in God's eyes, both of these things are good. You'll see behind me a a little picture, which we'll unpack as we go along here. Um, Think about a big picture. Every time that God has done something special throughout the Scriptures, it actually always involves creation. Now, you know, would we know about it if it was otherwise? No, and that's a fun thought to think about, but don't think too long. Every time God's done something special, it's with creation. Think about it. The very opening page of the Bible, the very beginning of the cosmos itself, what happened? God created heaven and earth good. And if you thought, you know, that was God testing it out, but then he realized he did the wrong thing, think again. The primary person that Christians worship claim, well, modeled and the New Testament claims to be God himself in flesh what did god do he put on flesh he can't think too poorly of it every time god's done something special it's involved the created world so here's the biblical story it's right behind me here in the first scene on my left, on your left you've got the very beginning the purple circle the marriage of the red and the blue you've got heaven god's dwelling place and earth our dwelling place and in the very beginning they started off together why Because heaven and earth were made to be married, just like a a husband and a wife. They were made for each other, heaven and earth together. You start off with heaven, earth, humanity, and God all sitting in a garden together. And God gives humans the commission to steward the ethos of heaven and push it out across the known world. We call this the cultural mandate, this beautiful vision of what it means to be human. God using us to steward and take care of his world. But then the next scene in the story is that humanity sinned. They rejected their God-given vocation, they turned in on themselves, and the claim of the Bible is that this isn't just a story from history, it's our own personal story. And so the next scene in the Bible is this, that you get the great split. Two things, one, humans are split off from God, exiled from God. And two, heaven and earth were split apart. Humans, therefore, are aimed towards death, and this cosmos is aimed towards decay. Here's the good news or at least the first part of it, that in Jesus Christ, God reconciled himself to humanity. In Jesus Christ, because Jesus lived the life that we should have, stewarding creation, living under God's rule in the way that we we're always intended to. He becomes our model. In the same breath, though, he died the death that we deserved, the death which is the result of exile from God's presence. He died the death that we Deserve. And because of him, because of what he's done for us and modeled for us, we can be reconciled to God. And that leaves this question. If humanity, because of Jesus, can be reconciled to God, what's God going to do about the rest of the cosmos? And this is the answer of the Christian hope. Here's the promise. It's that one day. The third scene. Heaven and earth will be brought back together. God will return to destroy sickness. He'll return to destroy sin, suffering, death, and decay. Christians will not just be, find themselves in eternity, they'll find themselves resurrected in a new material existence, in a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. It'll be a perfect, rewoven, healed, and material world. No more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, everything new. And one person who got a glimpse of this was the Apostle John. John's writing towards the end of the first century, and he writes a book called Revelation. Uh, He's writing to Christians who are facing immense suffering. And what does John say to those who are going through hard times in this world, who are experiencing the brokenness of this world, who, in other words, are experiencing the fact that heaven has been torn away from earth? He writes this, 21 verses 1 to 4, he said, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, "'for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, "'and there was no longer any sea.' Do you get a glimpse of that there? God is not taking Christians away from this world. That's not the hope that Christians have. God is bringing heaven down. God is not abandoning this world. He's going to renew it. God is not going to destroy the material world. He's going to restore it. God is not planning for our escape. He's planning for our resurrection in it. Why? Well, as one writer put it, and I love this phrase, because matter matters to God matter matters to God this world means something it is not an accident God doesn't regret it he's not sitting up there scared of the fact that he's created something and now it's got its own life he he does not regret creating this world the heavens and the earth but God is frustrated and he mourns the fact that this world right now is separate from heaven and his rule and his reign and his presence He doesn't regret it, but he mourns in the same way that anyone would who's experienced this that it's subject to sinful humans and dark powers. But the good news is that he has a rescue plan. And what he started in Jesus, which benefits humanity, he will finish in the end for all of creation. And this is the Christian hope. This is it. Now, if this makes you think, oh, that's nice, you've not known suffering, you don't know what it means to have chronic disease. You don't know what it means that have lost a loved one. You don't know what it means to experience the toil and labor, even just of the regular workplace. But if you've known suffering, then this is fire. This is fuel for your day. Why? Because you know that this is temporary. God's not going to take you away from it. He's going to renew it. It raises this question, though, and this is a sobering one. If God's got this plan, why doesn't he just do it now? Right? Lucky's able. If anyone's able, go with the thought experiment. If, if God's real and God's God, who's able to fix the world? Well, God, right? I love what Jenny said before that um, we, we try and um, uh, solve God-shaped problems with human solutions or something. She said it way better than I can. So who, who, whose pay grade does, suits this role? God. Why doesn't he do it now? And that question, it forces us to ask the more serious question as to where evil really resides. And in the Christian story, evil's two things. It's the out there reality that's real and should be named and mourned and addressed. But it's also the in here disposition of the heart. The Bible calls it sin. That the line separating good and evil doesn't exist between nation states or people groups or structures and systems. It it runs right down the center of the human heart. One writer put it like this, that the the, the, the problem of the heart of the human problem, there it is, Is the problem of the human heart. And so if we were to ask why doesn't God come away come now to do away with evil? The answer is that he's been really patient. Because God wants to melt the evil in our hearts, forgive us of our sins if we would confess them, heal us, make us whole, help us be followers of Jesus, united with him right now and on into eternity. God wants us to be part of this program of renewal and redemption and restoration and beauty. But he's got to fix us first. Jesus came into my life 10 years ago and it's a process and I'm learning and I'm growing and I'll never get there this side of heaven, but he's healing me. He's making me whole. He's making me more like himself and it's the best. So why doesn't God come now? Well, because there's people who still need to know him and you might be one of them. So the question this raises when you think of the hope of the future is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Have you come to meet him? Maybe you've walked away from the Christian faith and you just needed this reminder today. Here's what I'd say to you. You are welcome. I know no king like Jesus Christ. He forgives our sins. He changes our lives and he shapes us so we'd be walking forward that we'd become more like him. It would be joy for us, a blessing to the world and glory to God. Do you know Jesus? So what the hope is and to what the hope changes. What the hope is and what the hope Changes. What does it change? There's a phrase that Christians use whenever they're trying to critique someone who is like a bit disengaged from this world um, for being a bit of like an overly spiritual space cadet. And you might have heard the phrase before. It's on the screen behind me. Uh, We we critique people for being something like so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. It's a good critique. Uh, It generally says that someone's so disengaged from this world because they've got this vision of heaven and they're just so you know consumed by this picture but the critique relies upon a false definition of heaven see if heaven is just a promise of some eternal spiritual place somewhere other than earth then of course being heavenly minded means being disengaged from this world but what if the hope's different if you see that the end of history is not a world to which we escape but this world being renewed then you, can, you do what you can right now to be an anticipator of that new world and a participant in making it new. See, this is, this is what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus announced and inaugurated the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He loved the unlovable. He drew close to those that society outcasted. He, he, he fed the poor. He challenged the hypocrites. He denied himself and he gave his life. And our task, if we let it be so, is to partner with God, to build the kingdom of God, following Jesus who gave us the way. Now, before I apply this, let me just anticipate one little objection. I use the phrase building the kingdom of God. That sounds quite triumphalistic. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it sounds a bit um, overinflated. People might say, hold on, Alex. You know, uh, Doesn't the idea that we're building this heavenly city in God's kingdom um, sound a bit... You know above our pay grade and I'd respond to this sort of objection I'd say it's a good one but I wouldn't want to say yes or no directly I want to just issue caution uh, around two errors that we can find ourselves falling into Um, whenever we think about building God's kingdom you know this beautiful vision of a renewed heavens and a renewed earth there's two errors that we can fall into one is to be naively optimistic about our role and the other is to be sort of cynically pessimistic about our role um if you're naively optimistic about your role, then you, the risk is that you run the risk of building your own kingdom. Um, and this is the secular myth of progress, actually. Um, the secular story says that all we need to do to create utopia here in this world, all we need to do to get ourselves to the place that we want to go, all we need to do, so on and so forth, is we just need a better education program, we just need a better political program. We just need people to know X, Y, and Z, and you insert your human-based solution to a God-sized problem, and then you pat yourself on the back because you get places. But the problem with the secular myth of progress, Mark Say is a writer from Melbourne, pastor. He said it, it's, it's the vision of the kingdom without the king. You can't have the kingdom of God without the rule and reign of God under which you sit. It's naively optimistic about the contribution that humans can make to make this world a better place. We do make it a better place sometimes, but sometimes we unleash curse on the world. That's the first error. The second error is born out of Plato's worldview. If this world is something that we need to escape and we're going to abandon it, then there's no use seeking to make this world better. Work on this front is meaningless. And this would be the pessimistic view. It's pessimistic because it undermines the role we could have in partnering with God. So what do I mean when I say we partner with God to build his kingdom? I mean that God has something to do, which we could not. But we also have something to do, which he chooses not to. God has something to do, and we have something to do. And God is ruthlessly committed, maybe even irresponsibly so, to partnering with humans so that they would participate now in showing what the future world that God wants to bring will be. So how do you think about your work in this worldview? Here's a little encouragement. Think about your work as a signpost, an in-time signpost, of the beautiful world that God is going to redeem and resurrect. We partially enact now through our work what God will do fully then. Resurrection, renewal, redemption, and restoration. So back to work. How does the vision of the new heavens and the new earth change the way we inhabit our nine to five? Two quick things. One, it explains why good work is a good thing. I think we need that explained for us. It explains why good work is a good thing. See, if God's kingdom is a renewed material world, then that explains why we all intuitively want to make the world a better place. Martin Luther famously said that if God's kingdom is coming tomorrow, we should all plant trees today. I don't think he was an environmentalist, but he just got it. He got what? He got that this world matters, that it's going somewhere, that all of our good participation in making the world a better place will actually survive somehow, in some mysterious way, with continuity and discontinuity into the new heavens and the new earth. Martin Luther got it. One writer who I like on this topic, N.T. Wright, he said it like this. He said, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that is shortly about to be thrown into the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that is about to be dug up. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new World. So let's get practical. Maybe you're a doctor. Here's the imperative from heaven meet, treat, and love your patients to the glory of God. Good work's a good thing. Enjoy it, do it well. Maybe you're a creative. What's, that, what's this story mean for you? It actually means that you've got license to be a good creative, to enjoy the music you write to enjoy the art that you deploy. Enjoy it. Do well. Go for it. Maybe you're a firefighter. What is the good news of the, you know, the promise of heaven and earth being joined back together and this world being renewed? Preserve buildings. Don't let them be overrun by flames. That's actually a good thing. And you might ask, well, how, how, hold on, isn't this like an extra thing to Christianity? No. If God inaugurated the kingdom in Jesus... And he's coming back to establish it fully. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. Everything that we do in Jesus, by the Spirit, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, it is not vain labor. It has a point. It's going somewhere. And by some mysterious way, in a way that's actually hard to comprehend, it will echo into eternity. It's the ultimate vindication of work. Somehow, the good work you do in time will mean something in the... And second, this vision, it, it creates opportunities for redemption in whatever work we do. See, here's the imperative of the Christian hope, that whatever is aimed towards a renewed city with God at the center and peace for all creation, start doing that. Start doing that. I love saying it like this, that the Christian is the only person in the world who's got a job description that exists outside of and above but informs every part of all employment we ever might find ourselves having. The Christian has a job description. It's started in the cultural mandate of Genesis 1. It was renewed in the Great Commission from Jesus in Matthew 28, and it's finalized, and it's given a new texture at the end with this vision of what God will do at the end of time. This is our job description. Be an agent of renewal and blessing and redemption in your workplace. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you might find yourself in a mundane job. you can be an agent of renewal and blessing in that job. Maybe you work under a boss and you find them frustrating and hard and it's just really hard to work for them. Or maybe you have a very repetitive job and you're entering data into a spreadsheet all the time and you're just asking, well, how is this making the world a better place? The answer is, actually, that might be really hard to answer, but you can use your vocation to be an agent of redemption and blessing to the people you find yourself around. And here's here's the cool thought. If you do that, live such a life, people might ask questions to which this story, this hope, the Christian gospel is the answer. Maybe you're retired. You might live alone. You might live with the person that, um, you might live with your partner. You might live with friends, whatever your story. You might be retired. How does this, how does the Christian hope um, challenge you to think in your station at the moment? Well, it would just say that actually you've got a job description, even though you don't have a job right now. And that job description is to be an agent of redemption and renewal and blessing. So what does that mean concretely? Maybe the person you live with just needs a listening ear all the, all the more, you know? Maybe the person, um, maybe you don't live with anyone, maybe you're alone. Maybe you need to call people more, check in with people, love on people. How can you be an agent of blessing and renewal and redemption in the workplace um, you find yourself in? Maybe you're in the corporate world, and the primary narrative that dominates your imagination is the bottom line. You've got to, you've got to get above the bottom line, that which is most important is finances. Here's how the Christian hope would challenge that. It would just say, we're not all building for the bottom line. We acknowledge the bottom line, but there's a bigger vision. So how can you partner with God in what you're doing, aware of the bottom line, but with a bigger vision for how what you do really matters and will echo into eternity? And how can you tilt it towards justice and beauty? So what this hope is and what this hope changes, this hope is a vision, not that we would be, not escape this world, but that this world would be renewed. And what this hope changes, in short, absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. I wonder if you've heard this story before. I wonder if you've had a a glimpse of the future to which God wants to take this world. Encouragement for you today. If you've heard this, and it's lit a fire in you, let it change your Monday. If you're a full-time worker, full-time student, you find yourself in a mundane job, whatever your story is, let this change your Monday. Go home tonight and ask the question, how can what Alex shared from the scriptures impact and shape my workday week? But if you're not a Christian, here's my hope for you, that this either would have drawn you close to the Christian story and to Jesus himself, or that if it hasn't done this, it's at least made you want Christianity to be true. Because this is the ultimate story which makes all of life meaningful. We are going somewhere. Eternity is real. And so what we do with our life really matters because it anticipates and is a signpost to the good world that God would bring. As the band comes up, I just want to invite you to stand. I'd just love to pray for us as we close out this series. We've covered a lot of ground in this series. We've talked about a lot of topics And our hope is not just that you'd be informed about your work, but that your work genuinely would have been transformed. And so I want to pray that God might bless us in the work that we do as a church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the vision we get of the renewed heavens and earth and our place in it and I pray Lord for anyone here today who's unsure about their place in it. I pray Father that you would help them confess repent turn from the life they've lived turn to you follow you and start living real good life now the kind of life we get in relationship with Jesus for those of us here Lord who are I feel like we're in a rut at work works hard I pray that you would just Bless them, Lord. Father, I pray that you pour your spirit out on them and inspire them again for the work that they do. Lord, for those of us who are loving work, and this series has just been a great reminder to some truth that we've held onto for a long time, I pray, Father, that this would just be, again, another sedimenting, another rhythmic reminder that work is good, but it's broken, that you call us to it, but you also call us to rest from it. And that, Father, work anticipates the ultimate future that you're going to bring for this entire world. Renewal. The bringing together again of heaven and earth. No more crying, mourning, sickness or pain. And you at the center. And so, Father, help us become more like you in the workplaces we find ourselves in. Would that bring you glory? Would it bring us joy? And would our spheres that we find ourselves in Just be blessed, be changed, because there's a Christian in their midst. And Lord, we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.